Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with my my friend, Patrick Watson, who's joining me here in the studio to talk about some miscellaneous astrological topics and answer some questions that have been sent in by listeners of the podcast over the past few days. Uh, so, hey, Patrick, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much for having me. So, this is your first time to Denver, and definitely first time joining me here in the studio, even though you've been on a bunch of episodes of the podcast going back to what, like episode three or four or something like that? <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the early episodes. I can't remember exactly which one now. Yeah, the early history of the podcast as I've looked back on it, especially the first hundred episodes or so were just like me talking to like friends, my closest friends on random topics that I wanted to talk about, but it ended up being a lot of the same people sort of like over and over again early on. Yeah, so <laughs> you, uh, I, I need to make my cameos special. You know, I can't come on every time, Chris. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's kind of important. There's a like a scarce need for scarcity. It's like a marketing thing. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, and so we go way back. We actually met on MySpace originally on like an astrology forum that I used to moderate there back in like 2005, 2006. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we've told the story before, but I think one of the first times that we ever interacted was I um, was still really early on in my astrological studies and you invited me to your group after like you found some MySpace astrology group I was trying to make about like astrological compatibility, which is basically like based on um, you know, aspects between different sun signs or something. It was kind of, it was pretty, uh, pretty embarrassing <laughs> looking back on it. But thankfully you were like, Hey, you should join this other group. And that, that just completely blew my whole world open. Um, and that was actually right up my, uh, loosing of the bond, um, on my Sadaka releasing from spirit was in March 2005 and that's when we connected so on level two on level two okay yeah. it was around 17 years old wow and so yeah it was it was a really life-changing thing because that's where I came into contact with all of my um you know all of my mentors and all of the people who I end up learning a lot of what I know right and uh, got me on the path towards learning about traditional astrology and Hellenistic astrology and that's um that's how it happened is on MySpace back in March of 2005. Yeah. So, and then you eventually, I think what, 2006, I asked you to come out for one of the Project Hindsight conclaves or conferences. And that's where a bunch of us met up with like Nick Dagan Best and Austin was also there. And Austin, who I forgot in a previous uh, podcast, I forgot that that's when we first met. But yeah. Yeah. Cause you like roomed with Austin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I my memory uh, has uh, surprisingly um, yeah gone downhill I guess but um uh, uh, it's hard to keep details straight in my own life when I'm keeping so many other <laughs> dates and details right about the world and other people's lives now. So we were the young astrologers then. I used to be the youngest astrologer when I went to conferences, and then you're a few years younger than me. But now there's a whole other like generation that's come in over the past few years that's under us that is like the, the Pluto and Sagittarius astrologers. I I remember being the baby for a long time, and this has been a rough adjustment to being seen as not the baby anymore. And, uh, um, 
you know, I still see myself ultimately as like a student of astrology still, regardless of whatever proficiency or, or level that I reach, but I still appreciate, I still come at it with this uh, teenage, like, uh, enthusiasm, <laughs> you know, even if, uh, you know, we have, uh, I guess, you know, just the years of experience that uh, would suggest that we would be like, I don't know, elders in astrology. I didn't really see myself in that way. Yeah, I don't think we're elder. I don't think it's probably, you know, it's a weird middle ground to be like not the oldest astrologers in the community, which are more like the Pluto and Leo generation, mm -hmm. although some of them are starting to be on their way out and we're starting to lose some of the people from that generation, which is really weird. Um, yeah. But we're also, we're not like up there yet, but we're also not the youngest ones anymore. Right. So it's a weird in between middle aged astrologers. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we've got some topics. So you came out. We're going to do a rectification course this week, and we're going to record a series of lectures. But we want to do a podcast episode first. We were supposed to do like a rectification live demonstration from a local astrology group today, but um, we got sort of bad timing, falling in the middle of like a COVID wave, and then a bunch of astrologers recently got sick at the Northwest Astrology Conference, which wasn't good. So I didn't want to risk doing a meeting today. Yeah. So I thought we would do instead just a Q and A. All right. So um, let's t go into some discussion topics. Some of these are like Q and A things and some of these are just things that have been coming up recently. So one of them is um, significant transits often go by unnoticed because we lack the ability to grasp the full importance of events from their simple origins. And Part of that, a related thing, is that I'm starting to think that all transits coincide with something, but it just isn't in our field of vision. And I've been talking about that for a long time because it's something that's really um, evident when you look back on like Time Lord periods and eclipses and things sometimes, and you see an important transit happening, but it wasn't until like years later or sometime later that you realized that something started then that just hadn't intersected with your life yet even though it would eventually become important in your life. And I'm starting to think that that's a much larger phenomenon in astrology than anybody realizes because it's very hard to study and document. Right. You would have to be um, omniscient, right. omnipresent to really appreciate that. And who knows, maybe in like these that are coming surveillance states, maybe we'll have more, <laughs> more data, you know, to validate astrology. Astrologers um, should be cheering on the surveillance stages for the sake of having better <laughs> study tools for astrology. Yeah, I'm not probably not the best reason, but uh, yeah, you're not gonna. That's not gonna go over well with the conspiracy theory <laughs> crowd. Nothing goes over well with the conspiracy theory crowd. That's true. Uh, <laughs> but um, I was always really, com uh, I always thought it was really compelling. I think a long time ago you had an example about your site getting hacked during a Mars transit that you had been anticipating, but when it happened, nothing happened in your field of view. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. I mean, I don't really remember all the details because it was like 10 or 12 years ago, but it was just that, um, yeah, I had a bad transit and then it turned out I didn't see anything happen at the time. So I breathed a sigh of relief, but then I found out like a few days later that actually my site got hacked. And because I had the access logs for the server, I was able to see that they actually logged in and got into the site and started putting malware on it when the transit was going exact. And I've had a bunch of those over the years, especially for me with a day chart, because Mars is the malefic contrary to the sector is the most difficult malefic for me 
because Mars is more difficult for people with day charts. I've had other ones like that. Like once when my some of my like lectures got pirated, I didn't find out about it until months later, but I went back and looked when they were posted online on like Scribd or something like that. And the timestamp and the date was the exact date that I was having transiting Mars opposing my natal Mercury. And so sometimes just like stuff happens, but it's leading me, I'm, I'm being able to track these things now that I'm aware of it and I'm paying more attention to it, which is causing me to realize when I try to track it more that it's actually happening quite frequently. And I'm almost getting to the point where I'm wondering if, you know, what if in the most extreme scenario, all transits or all negative transits or even all positive transits do manifest in something we're just not aware of it a good chunk of the time or even maybe most of the time. Totally. Um, I remember so distinctly back in June of 2011, there was a lunar eclipse occurring in my fifth house. And I knew that it should be significant because I was in that, at that point in a 12th house perfection, which was ruled by the moon. So I figured that the lunar eclipse of that time should be you know, one of the most important transits of that year, and it's happening in my fifth house. And I, at the time, I was single. I wasn't seeing anyone. The most uh, fifth housey thing I was doing at that point was probably playing Pokemon on my PC. And uh, you know, there were no children, obviously, in my in my field of view at that time. But it turned out to be the case that um, it turned out to be the case that uh, about like eleven days or so prior to that lunar eclipse my eventual stepchild was born. So uh, <laughs> I just uh, thought that was pretty mind-blowing when I looked back on that and remembered that I had wondered what it was about. And it was about the emergence of uh, the person who would become essentially my first child. But, uh, you know, I had no idea who she was or, or that I would even be a step-parent about a year later by the time... Um, the next eclipse occurred in the fifth house is uh, when I actually met her for the first time just as an infant. Um, so that really, uh, as they when say, the, I would, when I, the next eclipse occurred in, in the same series in the same sign. Right. Yeah. Because there was another. Um, how many? How long later? That was about a year later. Um, there was a lunar eclipse in Sagittarius uh, in my fifth house. I mean, that connects to two other things, and one of which is that eclipses, sometimes people try to look for a singular event, but sometimes it's actually like a sequence of events that take place as the eclipses keep bouncing back and forth between those two houses in your chart for like a year and a half or two. Yeah, that's which right. Is a, yeah, a good demonstration of that. Yeah, it's it, the, the sometimes outline uh, developments in process, you know, as opposed to just uh, singular events. But yeah, I was pretty shook. <laughs> I was shooketh by uh, this uh, lunar eclipse that I could not have anticipated that it would actually be literally about becoming a parent. Um, but, uh, you know, it did happen outside of my field of view. And at the time, though, I think you said you were in a, a cancer perfection year. So you're actually paying a closer attention to the eclipses for that reason, but then didn't see anything at the time and, and were kind of like, didn't, didn't know why. Right. I just figured, wow, I guess uh, playing Pokemon is the highlight of this year, I guess, playing right. this game. you know. I mean, fifth house, I have been, that is another subtopic for later, but fifth house and games, I've been seeing how that's more important and how sometimes when people have 
important fifth house placements that that games and leisurely activities can become more important for a person or can get, become even their career or their life focus in some way. Mm -hmm. Well, the other reason why I guess that was significant that time is I had just finished college and it, in a weird way, it was kind of nostalgic sort of throwback or something to back when I was like a tween playing Pokemon on my Game Boy. I uh, didn't anticipate talking about Pokemon as much as I currently am on your show. So I think I'm going to stop saying Pokemon now. Okay. I'll just, <laughs> I could just pause and be silent for a few, like a minute until you say it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so transits happen and you don't always see what it's about, but eventually you may or may not find out. Right. So I think that's really important general transit principle. And then also I'm, st I'm starting to be, have a, have a realization after the last series of eclipses that I wonder if there's something about eclipses themselves that are inherently um, indicate something that starts or that ends that's major, but that it's uh, hidden from your field of vision or, or that it's not in view or that there's something occulted or eclipsed about it since astronomically that's exactly what's happening is like, you know, one of the luminaries is passing in front of the other and hiding the other luminary behind it in some sense. So maybe the astronomical symbolism of that is that something itself is hidden and is not immediately evident, even though something significant or something major has started at that time. Right. Um, because that's a recurring theme that I keep seeing with eclipses now that I go back and think about it is something important happening, but, but it not being evident initially, but then eventually at some point after that, it becomes clear or it something comes to light, so to speak, later on that in retrospect you realize was started at the time of the eclipse. On the other hand, though, you also do have those eclipse events where it seems like they are coinciding right. with kind of a dramatic event like we just saw with the April 30th solar eclipse in Taurus conjunct Uranus in Taurus, and that was extremely close to the collapse of the Terra stablecoin named after Earth, and it's associated uh, cryptocurrency Luna, named after the moon. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, sometimes these things really pop out, and other times they seem to be much more subtle. And it's, it's. Uh, I wish there was a um, a reason that could be applied, you know, to future eclipses as to whether they are more like part of a longer process or whether they are signifying distinct uh, uh, events of of uh, something or someone being eclipsed in some sense. Yeah, I hope somebody figures that out at some point. But at least now, I think if people are thinking about it and that if there's an idea that that's a possibility, maybe there can be ways that people can figure that out. Since I know there's some old rules in like the medieval tradition about determining when the effects of eclipse will come to fruition or what the duration of the eclipse um, um, effect is supposed to be in some texts. And those haven't always worked super well for me necessarily, although maybe it has to do more with something like this. And maybe when put in that context, it could lead to some interesting research. Right. And you could probably also take into account uh, whether it's a partial or total or hybrid eclipse, um, you know, or how, you know, what its gamma value is, how close it is to the, uh, how closely aligned it is to the center of the earth, those kinds of things, those might be other dimensions of uh, future study. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that brings up other related things. Um, one of the things I was thinking about recently 
an old tweet was that um, eclipses are catalysts for change, and sometimes change is good, while other times it can be more challenging, and it really depends on how the eclipse falls in your birth chart. Um, as part of an ongoing debate on the podcast about if eclipses are always bad or if they can be good. And I think one of the issues is that, um, on the one hand, some of the most positive as well as some of the most extremely negative events in a person's life will be foreshadowed by eclipses. And so sometimes when the really bad, extremely bad end of the spectrum happens, that can really stick with you and give you uh, a really negative sense of eclipses because especially eclipses can indicate endings of things since it's the closing down of a cycle between the sun and the moon, but it's like a major ending. And so sometimes when it falls in a certain house in your chart, it can indicate like the end of that chapter of your life or the permanent ending of something. Like if it's in the 10th house, it can be a career or a job ending. If it's in the seventh house, it can be a relationship ending. Um, fourth house, like a living situation ending or changing. And that's actually, you're, you're doing that right now, right? Uh, yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I just had the lunar eclipse occur in my fourth house and it was, it basically fell right in the center of the process of selling my house and moving across the country. And it also connects to the topic of parents too, because it'll be the first time that I've lived in a different city and state than my mother. And so, um, there's, uh, that's it, it. I called it about two years ago <laughs> that this is probably what was going to happen. And so, yeah, it definitely fell out, uh, as expected, but to this broader question of, you know, whether or not eclipses are, um, good or not. I mean, I, I think it's sort of like when you were in, sitting in class at school and you'll hear your name being called over the intercom to go to the principal's office. And, uh, you know, that could be good or it could be bad. <laughs> you know, all you know is, is that, uh, you know, the, the bosses are calling, you know, the principal is calling you, the, the sun and moon, the lights of the sky, you know, have something to say. And so you just, uh, you know, under, are understandably a little nervous or wary, you know, of what uh, that could mean. But it's, I think, um, you know, it's... Uh, I think the most true or accurate thing you can say is that the things to signify just tend to be of a sort of more dramatic or heightened nature, um, regardless of whether or not they're negative or positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like major endings and major beginnings is my usual keyword for eclipses. And then the subject of the major endings or beginnings tends to be whatever house it falls in. Mm -hmm. That's just reminding me, like you having your moving story is reminding me one of my earliest eclipse examples and it was, it was one of the things that actually made me switch to whole sign houses from placidus after fighting it for like a year but i had a eclipse back in october of 2004 that fell in taurus and that was in my fourth whole sign house and then i moved to seattle and left my hometown for the first time to be closer to kepler college and and to um, be able to access their library there where they had lots of translations and stuff. But then that led to a whole series of events where then the following spring or following summer, I then moved to Project Hindsight and then lived there for two years. So there's a lot of like changes in my home and living situation, but that also ended up being tied in with career stuff, of course, as well. When I started studying Hellenistic astrology during that time, since the eclipses were also hitting my 10th house, and that was the beginning of starting to learn ancient astrology. 
didn't you also just do a major interview with your mother right after having a solar eclipse in your fourth house? Yeah, like a couple couple weeks ago, she came out here for a visit, and that was the first time I'd seen her in like three years. And we did record a little, little podcast, a little discussion together. So I, I imagine then maybe it was closer to the to the time of the solar eclipse itself then that you might have like organized that trip or planned for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, so, basically. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, stuff like that comes yeah. up, but. Um, what was the point? The The point is just that eclipses are catalysts for change and sometimes it can be a major ending in some area and sometimes that can be difficult or traumatic or um, hard. Um, other times an ending can be a little bit smoother like like in your case where you're like you know that's a major ending and there's a lot of like emotional stuff there but it's also probably like for the best or pushing you into a new phase in your life in terms of moving across the country and, and moving into a new home that's like more in alignment with what you you've wanted or have been looking for for a more ideal living situation right yeah i wouldn't say that it uh is um necessarily all bad you know there's obviously some, some hard things about that um because my wife also has the same rising sign as i do so she has had the same uh, eclipse fall on the same house so it's been uh, a bit more extreme for her than it has for me but um, I have been ethics in my fourth <laughs> so maybe that's part of it right yeah yeah um, and then sometimes major beginnings so major endings and major beginning and that's obviously just an instance of both a major mm -hmm. ending as well as a major right. beginning I would probably also say that eclipses especially the lunar eclipses can signify culminations of things because sometimes things which have begun under a solar eclipse in one sign when the corresponding lunar eclipse happens like maybe six months later across this opposite set of signs it can sort of represent that thing being brought to a uh, fulfillment or completion or to a height and then um, and then the ending would be when you get back to the solar eclipse that occurs in the same sign where it occurred a year earlier so it can be, so I would say solar eclipses are like beginnings and endings, whereas like lunar eclipses might be conceptualized more as like culminations of things. And this process of of uh, moving for me has this is really <laughs> this has been in the works for such a long time that in some ways this lunar eclipse really feels like we've finally made it. As much as you could conceptualize it as a beginning and ending, it, it feels like we've we've. Uh, it's been beginning for a long time so we in some ways it feels like we we're reaching the you know sort of culmination of this whole process um so but you know it's a multivalent thing you know it's hard to, to put firm categories around these things yeah and and there can be really bad eclipse events and i've also seen it's been interesting watching uh people around me and people with like fixed signs rising um, who have the eclipses falling in like angular, the more important angular houses in their birth chart and seeing people have major changes and sometimes major endings over the past uh, few weeks. Um, I don't want to diminish the that sometimes eclipses and sometimes those endings can be really negative and subjectively difficult. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, the recent shooting in Texas, I couldn't not to astrologize it too much but i couldn't help but notice when i was reading like a write-up in the washington post that they said the shooter turned 18 on may 
15th, which was the day of the, the lunar eclipse in Scorpio, that was that really gnarly, not fun looking, pretty negative looking lunar eclipse that was square Saturn um, in the middle of May that we talked about on the last forecast. And then it said that the day that he turned 18, he went out and bought a bunch of guns and ammunition and started the process that would then lead to what he what he did in murdering a bunch of children like a few days later. It's also interesting too when you consider the traditional associations of like the moon with like uncharacteristic behavior, people behaving strangely around full moons or becoming lunatics or the prevalence of lunacy around uh, lunar phenomena. So that's another um, that I'm sort of reminded of that when I think of someone kind of reaching a kind of breaking point or something at a major lunar event. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I just know it was obviously that is one of, that in my head I was like, all right, score one for eclipses are not eclipses can be very malefic sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but still just trying to balance out those two that it can be those extremes of sometimes negative, but also sometimes extremely positive because we, you know, you and I for a long time, we ran a blog called the political astrology blog. And one of the things that we tracked was how um, the past three presidents, like every time an eclipse would take place in their rising sign or in their 10th house, that was usually the indicator of who was going to win the presidential election and become president at that point. Right. And reach sort of like the highest point in their career where they become the, the head of an entire country. And that happened with Obama in 2008 when the eclipse in Aquarius was in his first house. Um, then it happened when he got reelected four years later and the eclipses shifted to Scorpio and into his 10th house. Then um, 2016 ended up being Trump and the great American eclipse that occurred um, shortly after he was elected and like the summer of 2017 fell in Leo. And that was the one that fell across the United States and everyone went out and watched it. And that was in... That was the one that he watched without the goggles. He also yeah. watched um, <laughs> And that fell in his rising sign of Leo. Yeah. And then most recently, that was, you know, before the presidential election, one of the things we talked about in the forecast was that was one of the more the things that inclined us to think that a, that Biden would win because the eclipses were taking place in Sagittarius and Gemini, and his rising sign is Sagittarius. So the well, and same thing for Kamala Harris as well, Gemini rising. Oh yeah, Gemini rising. So right. she had the same thing. And then for Trump, of course, uh, the um, you know who could forget that the Electoral College date itself in 2020 in December happened on the very day of the solar eclipse that occurred opposite Trump's sun and uh, conjunct his moon. So um, you know that although that's kind of interesting because that potentially implies that maybe some eclipses are good for some people and bad for others. Because obviously that solar eclipse was good for Biden and bad for Trump. And, um, you know, with with uh, especially with lunar eclipses, you're often looking at that axis across the north node and south node. And, and you could get into uh, the potential um, differences you could um, extract from eclipses which occur on the north node versus the south node. And, um, you know, since the north node is the place where the moon's path generally starts going north of the sun and uh, the south node is where the moon starts going south of the sun's path. You, I guess we'd assume that um, there would be uh, sort of an opportunity for uh, whoever was represented <laughs> by the planet of the north node is potentially being more advantaged than the uh, luminary on the south node. 
but uh, that's just a speculation. Yeah, let's not get too speculative sure. here. But Trump was famously born on, a, on lunar a lunar eclipse, which himself made him kind of like, um, you know, if we're looking for what eclipses mean in a natal chart or maybe the potential for even potentially like, let's say, eminent people or people will be who will become eminent at some point. Um, you know, there's an example of, of somebody that became U.S. president and has was born the day of a lunar eclipse in Sagittarius. And then that is interesting that it was the Sagittarius eclipse on what well, was on like December 12th or December yeah, 14th was, or something like that. It was that. the exact day of the Electoral College. So, and that's, and, and that was the one that was in Sagittarius. It was a solar eclipse and that was in Biden's rising sign. And that was the final point where it became clear, like he was definitely going to become president because things are kind of like up in the air for a little bit. And even though we knew within like a week or two after the election in November of 2020 that, that Biden had won. It wasn't until it got certified by the Electoral College, you know, like six weeks later in December that everyone was kind of like, okay, this is pretty much a done deal for the most part. Right. Yeah. So eclipses very can be very important, very important turning points, great endings, great beginnings. And there were some presidents even before this last string of three um, that that also held up for, wasn't there? Um, Was it Bush Jr.? I want to make sure that I get this right. It's okay um, if you don't. I just wasn't sure if you could recall that offhand. Um, well, I, I know that, well, for, for Bush Jr. and for Gore, they both have Leo rising. Mm -hmm. So they would have had any eclipses that were happening in that time occurring in the same houses, which is interesting just in itself in itself, because they it was <laughs> I guess even the solar system didn't quite know who to declare the winner. You know, that's, really, that that's a really good point and also a danger then sometimes of, of predicting with eclipses is that sometimes it can be a great beginning and sometimes a great ending. And for Bush, it was the beginning of his presidency. Um, whereas for Gore, it was like the end for the most part of his political career. I just can't remember if there were eclipses in Aquarius and Leo in the 2000 election. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could I could pull it up. I don't I don't actually want to dwell on it actually, too, too much. Cause... Actually, it would be close because it's about um, 18 years prior to 2017. And if that's when there would have been eclipses in Leo Aquarius, then math would dictate that the nodes would probably have been yeah. Oh, so yeah, they were kind of uh, past Aquarius and Leo then by that point. Well, no, but it was the campaigns. It was like launching their campaigns and stuff. Okay. Um. Anyway. Anyway. So that's what I get for trying to <laughs> talk about things before I look them up. So that was an eclipse um, sort of subtopic that I wanted to start with. Was there anything else related to eclipses relevant? Um. Probably not. I mean, we could transition on to the, the fifth house thing you mentioned in passing. The fifth house is the place of games. I've been coming to understand the importance of that sometimes and how fifth house placements can sometimes very literally manifest in a person who has more interest in games, whether that's like video games, but also board games or um, leisurely activities like, you know, golf. Um, and sometimes when a person has like the ruler of the ascendant in the fifth house or the ruler of the tenth in the fifth, that can become a major part of their life's work or life's focus for some reason because literally their focus in their life becomes, you know, what is to other people just a game. 
like Tiger Woods is a famous example of that, who, what is he? He's like Virgo rising with Mercury and Capricorn in the fifth whole sign house, I believe. He is Virgo rising. That's yeah. about as much as I can remember. Okay. Well, he has the ruler of the ascendant in the fifth house and he, you know, became, he not just excelled and, and reached the top of the field, but most of his life was dedicated to golf, to, you know, a game. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's like athletic and it's a sport, but it's also uh, ultimately on some level also just like a game. Right. I've had a few clients without getting into the specifics you've had, like, um, either like rulers of the 10th or 6th place in the 5th house and they had careers that were involved with like hospitality, hospitality, tourism, um, you know, places of recreation and leisure, resorts, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, another one, I don't know if I have his chart on here, but is Gary Kasparov has the ruler of the ascendant in the 5th house. Yeah. So the pursuit of pleasure. <laughs> oh, uh, in terms of you know, things done for fun, for, for games. Well, just that, you know, if a per- I think the principle is that, so he, he has Sagittarius rising and Jupiter's the ruler of the ascendant and it's located in Aries, which is the fifth whole sign house or the fifth sign from the rising sign. I think the principle is just that, you know, for other people, occasionally if somebody has like the moon in the fifth house or, or some other planet in the fifth house, they might like like or have more of a propensity towards liking games as long as it's not situated difficultly like because you know there can be the opposite where it's like a difficult place in in the fifth house and then maybe the person has an aversion to games or or doesn't like that area of life or that area of activity but for for some people if they just have like one placement and it's not a significant placement maybe it's something that they do do occasionally or in their free time or there is a period in their life where that's important but it's when that planet is like somehow more important in the chart in an overall sense, like being the ruler of the ascendant or the sect light or something like that, that potentially can take on some more, that area of life can take up on a a much more major role in the life. Like in this case of becoming like the, the grand master of chess and becoming like the most um, accomplished chess player in the world for a period of time. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of, I'm reminded of my own Saturn in the fifth house. Okay. Um, I have Saturn and Sagittarius in the fifth house. And um, my wife and I, since we both have the same placement, we kind of joke that every time we get involved in something fun, we're asked to take over for it and take on the administrative managerial duties of it. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so it's like, um, so for example, like I just like joined a choir, like just for fun, but like somehow I wound up having to take on the responsibility of like leading it and making sure the sheet music's all printed up for it to the point where it's not that fun for me, right? <laughs> you know, and then I, you know, also this came into play too as a teacher as well as a, as a music teacher, you know, I was doing music, which is ostensibly, you know, a creative field, something that, uh, you know, should be enjoyable to teach. But as being a musician is a very different experience from teaching children and managing children and administering other people's kids, which is literally one of the traditional interpretations of Saturn in the fifth house. So yeah, uh, it's like <laughs> games aren't that fun for me. Cause I end up having to like be the administrator of them or something. Right. Um, so that's uh, Saturn in the fifth, kind of a bummer. 
like I, I was the like in college, I was like the place where people went to party. Like I okay. took on the responsibility of like creating the most awesome parties in my dorm. Right. You know, and it was also me on the hook if anything went wrong. Okay. Um, so you're so, the one that gets in trouble with like the RA. Yeah. You know, the, the <laughs> so, you know, it was cool. It was fun. Everyone had fun. And that was the idea. But like I was the one who had to clean it up. I was the one who made it happen. I was the, you know. Uh, in the Saturnian role of, of, of party master, I guess. Right. Well, I was thinking of dungeon master. If there's like the <laughs> 80s and you're playing like Dungeons and Dragons, you would be the dungeon master. Right, right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, other fifth house things, of course, you know, sometimes it's not games and more commonly the most literal manifestation of the fifth house and the most traditional one going back 2000 years is just children. And sometimes when people have either a lot of planets in the fifth house, like a stellium, or they have an important planet in the fifth house. It means there's something about the topic of children that becomes more important in their life than um, for maybe compared to other people or just will become important at some point in the person's life. And um, I always use that famous example uh, that Lisa showed me of the children's book author, Judy Bloom, who has like a stellium that includes the ruler of the ascendant in the fifth house. And she became uh, award-winning children's book author and, and notable children's book author in addition to having her own children. Um, more recently in the news, not to get into it too much, but you know, on Twitter right now is trending that Nick Cannon um, is having another child or something and he's had a lot of children over the past few years and I just glanced and it turns out we have a birth time for him and he has a stellium of planets I thought was really interesting of four planets in the fifth house. So just sometimes like children becoming more important or um, that being a larger topic in your life when you have planets there seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to another topic. We're, we're doing pretty good here. Um, one of the things experiences or observations, it was an experience, it was an observation I made recently was that when experiencing Uranus transits, we all become unruly teenagers again, no matter what your age was. And this was an observation I made of like a guy that was in his like mid eighties and he's go going through his Uranus return and um, suddenly is becoming like rebellious and wanting to throw off like restrictions and like um, do things differently. And then there's been a funny role reversal with his younger middle-aged like daughter who then is put in the position of like a parent who's having to like tell him no or, or tell him to rein it in and, and stuff like that and having a hard time like keeping him in line. Um, and I thought that was interesting because I thought it, it said something very deep to me about how Uranus transit is experienced and that deep internal drive for freedom and the throwing off of restrictions that sort of comes with that no matter what your age is. And there's something about that that's... You're not the boss of me. Right. <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it, it's the eternal rebellious teenager, although I guess... It, maybe it's more accurate to say that it's the uh, the eternal uh, like twenty to twenty one year old <laughs> since that's the time of the first square. Um, there's just been so many weird news stories about people aged sixty three to sixty four. Um, it seems as though when which people is the second square is which is the second square, the closing square before the final return at eighty three eighty four. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you're right. It seems to be a time when people just um, uh, uh, have such a need for um, independence uh, and 
to be free of others rules or standards or expectations that they're willing to do things that might be hard for other people to understand which is why some people might even say like you know people can act crazy you know at at uh, under major uranus transits because they you know they uh, you know set a new precedent for themselves it's a you know time of um yeah doing doing that which is unprecedented in their lives right and then the the classic uranus transit of course that's in pop culture outside of astrology is the midlife crisis of people in their like early to mid 40s and the classic like uh you know running off and buying a red sports car scenario um which you know as astrologers is we all know is the uranus opposition transit that occurs in your early to mid 40s for everybody when uranus gets um about halfway through the zodiac through compared to where it started in your birth chart absolutely yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many examples of people being able to kind of throw off the shackles of what they'd previously um, constrained themselves by or, or when they, uh, I mean, I think one of my most, one of my favorite, like, positive Uranus return examples is probably like Robert Downey Jr., who at age 42. Uranus return? Yeah, it was at his uh, Uranus opposition, pardon me. <laughs> yeah, say, yeah, he's not that old. I mean, he, uh, does, he does look young for his age, but... <laughs> yeah, that would be yeah, pretty. Um, yeah, so I meant his Uranus opposition around age, the age of 41, 42. That was when he was cast as Iron Man and, you know, went on to do all the, the Marvel films. And, you know, it's if you didn't know about his earlier life, I think it's harder to appreciate how drastic of a, a change this has been in his life, where previously up to that point, he was known as a very talented actor who struggled with. Um, substance abuse and and spent some time in jail and um, you know really had uh, a lot of um, problems that he had to overcome yeah it looked but, like he was throwing it all away and he kept ending up in trouble and ending up in, in jail and in but court. he was really able to like remake himself with that uranus opposition and i think that's maybe the lesson we can all take from like uranus uh hard aspects is that they kind of give us a chance to renew or remake our lives as if they were new mm -hmm. and um sometimes that means like taking a big chance or taking a big risk but um ultimately there seems to always be a feeling and i think lisa shime has said something like this before uh where when you look back on it in the rearview mirror there's always a feeling that it kind of just had to happen this way in order to reach kind of a new state of equilibrium or a new normal right that was necessary in some sense yeah and i mean that's always but it, and it doesn't always look rational from the outside for the people around us because you're just suddenly shaking everything up and there's a sudden impulse to shake everything up and sometimes that can be constructive uh there can be scenarios where it's not where it's just shaking everything up and then you're left with a mess afterwards so i want to acknowledge that as a possibility sure. as well since that sometimes happens yeah and it's often experienced i would say as a malefic if in many cases if as a part of your life that you're happy with then disruption is probably not going to be a good thing um i've had two separate clients um who both had scorpio rising and they both had uranus ingress into their seventh house of relationships one of them before they entered 
before Uranus entered the seventh house, one of them was already married. So when Uranus went into the seventh house, this is when um, they started experimenting with uh, having an open marriage and having other sorts of um, relationship experiences outside of marriage. And so this is obviously a you know very novel experience to be having in one's partnership. So Uranus going through the seventh house for another person. Um, they had never been in a relationship before, uh, for their whole life, um, up to, they were at the Uranus opposition. Uh, so when Uranus entered their seventh house and made the opposition to the natal Uranus, they experienced relationships for the first time. And so this was like a huge change for them, you know, a very different kind of change. Um, and the, oh, and then there's also the probably the more common scenario, which is when Uranus goes to the seventh house, that there's just um, large enough problems in the relationship that potentially, you know, cause uh, a breakup or divorce, and um, and then that Uranus transit through the seventh house is about navigating relationships as if they were new again, just because it had been so long since, you know, they had been single. So. Um, yeah same flavor different chip <laughs> well and it's been interesting seeing recently because one of the things we wondered about months ago and i think in the year ahead forecast which was once the eclipses and the nodes fully changed signs and moved into the taurus scorpio axis that the eclipses would start falling pretty close this year to uranus and then that's been really interesting seeing that happen because we kind of wondered if it would supercharge the uranus transit for some people that's already been going through taurus um, and uh, I feel like that's really happened over the course of the past month or so. And it's been interesting seeing how um, that's shaken up, especially people with major fixed sign placements like Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius, and some of the Uranus stuff that's already been going on, just getting amplified or magnified in some sense by the eclipses now also taking place there. And it'll be interesting to see how that continues to go over the course of the next year. Like, for example, in November, when we have that lunar eclipse in November that takes place, I think, very close to conjunct Uranus. Yeah, that's actually on the uh, day of the midterm elections. Right. Because of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So some sort of disruption. Um, that brings up something I was thinking about recently about how the different modalities and the different signs react to change that also made me wonder if some of the eclipse stuff and some of the Uranus stuff isn't harder for the fixed signs because the fixed signs of the different three different modalities of cardinal, fixed, and mutable that the fixed signs might be most reluctant to change um, sort of inherently as an inherent default for them. And so some of the stuff with like eclipses indicating major endings or Uranus indicating major changes or disruptions might be harder for fixed signs as a result of that. Um, one of the keywords that I came up with is I was thinking that cardinal signs initiate change and they do it decisively. Fixed signs tend to resist change and mutable signs are sometimes indecisive about change. Although I think you had a better ooh, keyword for mutable signs. Oh, well, adaptability. Yeah, yeah. so mutable signs tend to be more like adapt, adaptable to change. They tend to adapt to change. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, point, you know, because although Uranus is like this more like paradigm shift level notion of change, Mercury is this more kind of inconstant, uh, sort of more minor level 
uh, notion of change and uh, uh, Mercury, Mercury's domiciles are two of the mutable signs, Gemini and Virgo. So, uh, you know, it's sort of baked right in, you know, that like mutable signs have a kind of mercurial or Jupiterian sort of quality. And those are the planets which are maybe most associated with um, like the kind of mercurial notion of change or maybe Jupiterian notions of being able to sort of expand and capture multitudes. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea that like the fixed signs might struggle the most with transits that suggest changes, paradigm shifts of sorts, uh, being fixed signs and you know, being resistant to change, especially when you consider you know, the kind of seasonal association you can draw with fixed signs where that's when a season is at its most sort of constant or whatever it's, it's reached its most expressed state, you know, right. the middle of summer is the hottest part. Yeah. Well, and that's why I thought about that. Cause I was just, um, I've been doing the Zodiac series and I've been doing it as the sun, I've been doing each sign as the sun is moving through that sign so that I'm in, you know, I recorded the Aries episode under during Aries season when the sun was moving through Aries and I did the Taurus episode when the sun was moving through Taurus and in the original two-part Zodiac series that I did with Austin and Kelly years ago, where we did the first six signs and the second six signs, they were much more reluctant to talk about seasonal things, in, even in connection with the tropical Zodiac and in connection with the signs, um, which is more common amongst 20th century astrologers to make some of those seasonal connections. But it's um, obviously, it's tricky because we want our astrology to be more universal and inclusive and to take into account the northern hemisphere where western astrology and the tropical zodiac developed but also the southern hemisphere but you run into an issue where the seasons are, are flipped or reversed in the southern hemisphere so it wouldn't be true to make certain seasonal associations in the north unless you're flipping the zodiac signs in the south which right. um, most astrologers i know for the most part in like australia or other times other areas say that you sh you don't have to do or that you don't have to flip the signs. Um, I don't have a strong opinion about that, but I have been reviewing and, and thinking and going back to and thinking that some of the seasonal associations are more important and that we should explore that more and, and lean into it more, even if it makes our astrology more um, restricted to you know certain areas and then needing to decide whether that's different in other areas because I think there is something very important about the quality of the seasons as they're connected with certain signs of the zodiac and the original meanings that developed for those well to be uh to be fair at least the quadruplicities the signs would technically remain stable yeah and even if you flipped the zodiac you know right middle of summer here would still be the middle of winter there so they'd still be they'd still have those fixed uh, sort of qualities, even if they were the opposite type or something like that. But um, yeah, and it's like I've always thought about that. But one of the, one of the issues, for example, is like the reason we start Aries and the first sign there at the vernal equinox is because that's the beginning of the spring season mm -hmm. in the in the northern hemisphere when the light starts increasing and the days start becoming longer. But also because at that point. Um, that is when plants start growing in the mm -hmm. spring season and you start getting the growth of plants in the emerging coming out of winter and coming out of that hibernating season. 
And then what's interesting is that, and what I noticed and, and was thought was very stark this year was just in the middle of Taurus season, when the sun is at 15 degrees of Taurus, um, spring is in full bloom and all of the flowers are in full bloom at that point. And it's just very beautiful out and very distinctive um, that everything's sort of like full of life and, and color and everything else during that part of the season in the middle of the fixed sign when it's at its most you know, to whatever extent anything is ever permanent, which it's not, but that's when it's at its most stable, let's say, in the middle of the fixed sign. But then what's interesting is that opposite to that, in the opposite side of the year is Scorpio. And when you're at 15 degrees of Scorpio, you're right in the middle of the fall season and all of the leaves are dying and are falling off of the trees. The days are getting shorter and the nights are starting to win over and become longer. And then like darkness is starting to triumph over light and you get some of those associations. And I think there's some important symbolic stuff about that informs the meaning of the signs that comes from some, some mm -hmm. of that. So I think it's worth revisiting a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my own personal pet theory about like uh, the Northern versus Southern hemisphere issues in astrology is basically in order to resolve that debate, you'd have to find something unique or special about North. And I think that what makes the Northern hemispheric orientation of the earth um, preferred or special in my view is that from uh, the point of view of the earth's motion through the galaxy, the northern hemisphere of the earth is technically facing in the direction that the earth itself is moving. Um, so if you were to look at the solar system relative to our galactic center, it's like uh, horizontal to it, basically. Sorry, vertical to it, rather. And so the north face of the earth is facing in the direction that the solar system itself is moving. Um, so, in a sense, north is like the front seat of the car, and the south, south southern hemisphere is like the back seat of the car when, when viewed from the point of view of our motion around the uh, galaxy. So, that would be why I would think maybe it makes sense that like the Earth is actually should be considered like with the north side as like the front, because that is literally facing the direction of our entire solar system and its motion around the galaxy. Okay. Yeah. But I, that's just my theory. <laughs> I have no idea. I've been posing that question. I used to pose it a lot more frequently to astrologers, which is that if Aries, if we're going to use the tropical zodiac and Aries this is the first sign of the zodiac, then we have to come up with an explanation that's true for why Aries should be and why the vernal equinox should be the beginning of the cycle of the circle of signs that's true in both the northern and southern hemisphere. Um, and of course, that's, you know, this problem is why some people, or it's one of the things that could lead somebody to think um, that the sidereal zodiac is appealing because then that the, the constellations are true in the northern and southern hemisphere and the directionality of the constellations would be true no matter what. But then the problem with switching to sidereal is that then you lose the rulership system because the rulership, traditional rulership system is clearly based on a tropical rationale um, where very explicitly there was like a Hermes text that 
said that you start by assigning the sun to 15 degrees of the sign of Leo because that's the height of the summer and that's the middle of the summer season when the sun with its light and its heat is at its highest highest point essentially and then that's that becomes the the basis or the anchor for then assigning the rest of the planets based on their relative speed and distance from the sun starting with mercury which then gets assigned to virgo the next sign over then to venus then to mars and jupiter and saturn and so on and so forth so the rulership scheme itself has a tropical and explicitly seasonal basis to begin with so that's one of the reasons why if you want to use the rulership scheme then um it makes more sense in a tropical context, context. Yeah. yeah agreed all right so that's that when it comes to change cardinal fixed mutable do you have any other ideas about that in terms of the modalities um the only other thing i would add is don't forget about them if you're watching this <laughs> sometimes there's really simple things in astrology because i feel like sometimes the quadruplicities are something that you learn about in the beginning of astrology yeah and then you kind of forget about later but it helps to remember <laughs> that those are some of those common qualities of the signs and um you know uh, it's uh, uh yeah i just think it's it's maybe one of those forgotten about um things that you learn so yeah don't don't sleep on them right for sure um let's see one other oh yeah there's a recent tweet by elodie meow who said um my favorite thing about reading charts is that i can see the beauty of someone when they can't see it for themselves and then i can reflect it back to them and i thought that was really true and a really good thing and it, and it connected with something i've said for years which is that people often can't see the benefits in their life because they sometimes take for granted the things that they have going for them and especially the benefics um, they tend to take for granted the benefic parts of their chart and by extension their life um, and it's usually good to be able to help people to see what they have going for them and to mirror that back to them because it can sometimes tend to be a blind spot that we that we all take for granted like if you have benefics in like the let's say fourth house and like your parents have always been very supportive or something like that that can be something you take for granted whereas other people might not might not have that or might have a more difficult relationship or less supportive relationship with their parents or if benefics are in the seventh house and relationships have always gone well for you maybe that's something you take for granted or if you have benefics in the second house maybe finances finances have never been an issue for you or you have luck you know have, always having an income for some reason versus somebody that, that doesn't have that um, so sometimes letting people see the good things about their life and their chart and helping them to see that better can be helpful or, or a benefit of astrology. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I tend to find too that people find a great sense of validation for um, some of the hard choices they've made. You know, if, if I'm able to you know describe it well enough and um i think that uh that is definitely an important thing that people can get out of a reading and understanding astrology i'm trying to think of a good example of that but i don't know that i i don't know that i can do it without potentially giving away 
personal information. So right, that's <laughs> one of the things that sucks about being a consulting astrologer is you see so many good examples, but you can't always share all of them due to client confidentiality. Right. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of secrets die with us. A lot of good examples of just like <laughs> would be good examples. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, celebrity astrology sometimes becomes as prevalent as it is in the astrological community because those are examples that you because they're sort of public knowledge and they're they're public lives that are being played out in front of everybody in in the news or in the media and that everybody does have a shared experience of and, and because it is public um, you know it's it's there's a desire to want to do that because uh, of that avail availability and accessibility and relatability um, although there are starting to be some more debates about privacy and like the appropriateness of like commenting on celebrity charts and different astrologers taking different positions on that in different ways. I mean, I think you got to be careful because you know you're only getting. Um, I mean, in some ways, I mean, we've talked. I think we might have talked about this before, but uh, obviously, things which come from like a public record things which are you know absolutely sort of verified those things are worthy of you know being looked into but the one issue i sort of run into with charts is like someone will have a question about a particular thing in their life but the chart seems to be screaming about some other topic and i say that to say that sometimes what we think is really the most important thing going on for someone which might be what we see as like a news headline might not even necessarily be the most important thing to that person themselves in that time and um you know maybe like someone's having like a, you know maybe someone's in a bad news cycle but if you look at that chart it's actually relating back to some very personal problem so it's um tricky to know or, or what you're even looking at i don't have a i don't know if you have a birth time for a minute i haven't looked at his chart but an example of that was um bruce willis recently where over the past like couple of years he'd been cranking out like a bunch of low budget movies where he was getting like a large paycheck just to appear and sort of like show up and do and not put in a lot of effort but he's just like cranking out these like low budget action movies which was really people were commenting on and people started actually making fun of him about because he was just like cranking out these movies are coming out every other month compared to like the 90s when he was like one of the leading action stars in Hollywood with like the Die Hard series and like the Fifth Element and like other big huge blockbusters like that and so some film critics were like making fun of him and stuff and I, I remember seeing YouTube videos commenting on this where there was like a one um, movie review channel where they were like going through all of his bad movies and like commenting on it but then earlier this year it came out that he had um, some sort of major physical disease like mental disease that was setting in that was making it so that he couldn't speak anymore what was it called it's called like aphasia or something like that i yeah i don't remember the specifics but i do remember reading about that and you know i think i myself might have made less charitable comments about it some of these movies. Oh no! And, All right. Uh, well, I wasn't talking about you. I just, yeah. <laughs> it was just an interesting observation well, to me. Well, it's just you... well, it was such a well, it's such a glaring mismatch, you know, between right. you know his fine work in the past versus, you know, like some of the things that have come out lately. But so it's really yeah, it's sad to know that like there was a reason for that, and it's something that wouldn't have been apparent until, you know, 
you actually talk to him or yeah well you know. but you you don't know what's going on in a celebrity's life and so it turned out that he was trying to make as much money as he could while he still could for his family before he became incapable of making an income anymore essentially and then of course everyone then feels who had criticized him or whatever felt bad because they suddenly realized that the things that they were sort of clowning on him for were th was something that's much more understandable and sympathetic and right. yeah so that was just a good general thing in terms of that and in terms of not knowing what's going on in anyone's life you know fully unless you're in their shoes in some sense but you know that being said it's still interesting and, and illustrative when there is a major public thing with a celebrity that's not really fully arguable but there's just an objective event that has occurred if there is an interesting correlation in their chart to you know just note it and put that in your head or or sometimes talk about it occasionally for the sake of continuing to expand our understanding of astrology and our our centuries long um, tradition of recording celestial movements and what happens with the correlating earthly events as part of our like repository of astrological correlations going back to Babylonian times when they were writing down these observations on the little clay tablets. Um, you know, just this past weekend, I think Britney Spears got married and she has Libra rising. And so Jupiter recently moved into her seventh house and is transiting over her descendant right now. I thought that was a pretty good example of just like Jupiter transiting her seventh house and getting married. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, but then in, in other instances, just yesterday, um, Justin Bieber, who I've used as a chart example before for like Zodiac releasing and other things like that, announced that he had developed, he put a video out on Instagram where he had developed some sort of um, disease which paralyzed like one side of his face so that he couldn't blink and he couldn't um, smile on half of his face. And this caused him to like cancel a bunch of um, concerts and like tour dates and stuff like that. And he said something very specific about needing to focus on his health. And we have a time chart for him and he has Scorpio rising. So that lunar eclipse that happened in the middle of May would have been in his first house of, of his body and his physical well-being and physical incarnation. But then also the ruler of his ascendant, since he has Scorpio rising, is Mars, which is located at um, 25 degrees of Aquarius in his chart and Saturn just recently what was it, like a week ago or maybe within the past week stationed retrograde at 25 degrees of Aquarius and he has a night chart so Saturn is more difficult for him so it's a really good example of um, the other end of things which is sometimes a difficult event happening when a transiting malefic makes a station on an important planet in our chart especially the ruler of the ascendant yeah that's a really um, fantastic example and uh, kind of a sad one didn't didn't think I'd see the day when I pitied old Biebs but uh, yeah you know I guess it's a strange way I guess in which you know astrology kind of um, allows you to see a person as a person you know rather than the I guess you could say media constructed image of someone um, to to realize that you know is uh, you know this this is a real person you know yeah i mean that whole ass life i mean know? to me that's important because it tears down the false 
um, construct that I think we sometimes have socially of that once a person becomes a celebrity or reaches a certain height of celebrity that they cease to be human almost and instead become the subject of all sorts of other things of, of scorn or ridicule or jealousy or, or whatever, or that it's okay to take shots at celebrities because they're celebrities or because they're rich right. or because they're successful or what have you. And seeing celebrities reacting to transits to their chart, I think that's true. That it does help to personalize them and remind you that they're just a human that's going through things just like everybody else, even if they happen to be in the spotlight or even if they happen to be more well off or something like that. It's one of the reasons I don't get into and try to avoid for the most part that that sort of like trashing celebrities culture thing that happened that was especially much more prominent, I feel like, in the mid 2000s with some of the celebrity gossip blogs and like things like that yeah like the superficial and things like that sure yeah so um yeah so that was an example recently i don't think i let me see if i have his chart actually just to put it on the screen really quickly because it was so prominent and it was just a good example of not just eclipses, but stations. And a lot of people, did you see all the dialogue surrounding like Saturn stations where all of a sudden every pop astrology, like uh, Twitter account is talking about Saturn station all of a sudden? Had you noticed that? I, well, I mean, I tend to notice uh, <laughs> every, every little event becomes a reason for everything according to some accounts. Uh, but uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, well, there's stuff that gets overblown, but I was just surprised that um, there's certain concepts now that are becoming more mainstream, and I was surprised to see that one becoming more mainstream, like a Saturn stationing, you know, mm -hmm. which I think is important. Yeah, that's yeah. It's like an intensification of a Saturn transit, and if you have personal planets around that degree or within a degree of like a hard aspect of where Saturn is stationing that can be much more intense and can intensify that transit for you and indicate a turning point. Um, as in the case with, you know, Justin Bieber, for example, having his ruler of the ascendant at 25 degrees of Aquarius, having Saturn stationed there, and then having this major health issue come up that's affecting his his body and his appearance and his physical well-being. Um, but I was just surprised that we have a little bit more advanced concepts like that that are becoming more mainstream mm -hmm. you know because previously let's say 20 years ago the most mainstream astrological concept is just like what's what's your sign everybody knows their sun sign but then over the past 10 years suddenly your big three is becoming like common knowledge and and i, I want to say most people commonly know or a lot more people compared to 10 years ago if you ask what your sun, moon, and rising are, like people will they know, may know. know that information. They know that, yeah. And like websites or apps like um, CoStar have made that more mainstream. But then other concepts like Mercury retrograde has become more mainstream. To a certain extent, Saturn, Saturn returns started to for a while now. But it's wild seeing something like a Saturn station become like a piece of pop astrology that's like getting out there somehow. Mm, even even if that's being that. used for not great purposes in some instances where people are saying things that don't make sense astrologically. I'm more just interested in the phenomenon in some sense. Yeah. I think the earliest pop astrology reference I can think of to Saturn retrogrades 
is uh, has a scene in um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, it's like when all these young people are like traveling in this car. Uh, one of them mentions looking at a, an ephemeris or something that like, oh, Saturn's retrograde right now, and they're like, what does that mean? And then he gives some sort of like ominous sounding statement, you know, about a time when evil, you know, is like at a, you know, it has more force in the world. And it's kind of this, you know, dramatic foreshadowing of the, you know, horrific events that follow with the, you know, Leatherface and the chainsaw and the massacring. Uh, <laughs> but um, I always thought that was kind of funny though, because like Saturn retrogrades happen, you know, once every year and Saturn's retrograde about like a whole third of the year. So <laughs> like for them to sort of build it up like this kind of like rare astronomical thing kind of um <laughs> didn't make a lot of sense to me as an astrologer like if it had been like a you know if they said like oh it's a lunar eclipse conjunct like you know retrograde mars i might have been like oh well that's actually yeah that does sound a bit more like leatherface will chop you up that day not saying that's a specific interpretation i'm just saying well that <laughs> that's, well, that's like the musical hair. What was the the Age of Aquarius song when it's like when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with <laughs> Mars? And they're like the people of the Earth will what, like everything will become peaceful or something like that. Yeah, and it's like that would happen for almost thirty days in a row every couple of years or so. <laughs> yeah, well, for I, Mars to be conjunct Jupiter with the moon in the seventh. I realized at one point whoever wrote that was just thinking more symbolically. And yeah. Like, moon in the seventh house and people are more feeling about others sure and that if mars is the planet of war but jupiter's planet of peace then when the two align there'll be peace is what they were probably thinking when they wrote that line that's um, especially hilarious given recent events unfortunately yeah we, <laughs> we just had an alignment of mars conjunct jupiter at the beginning of the month and then not very long after that was the shooting in texas and then there's just like a string of other gun violence and other uh, hyper like focus on, on gun violence and things in America over the course of the past two weeks. Well, and I would think the reason for that, as opposed to like other Mars Jupiter conjunctions, is that Jupiter is in the sign of Aries. So, you know, it's it Jupiter says yes, it confirms or expands or enlarges whatever sign it's going through, whatever house it's going through. So, if it's going through the domain of Mars of war of violence then it makes sense that it would in some sense be giving the green light to to more of that and then especially in conjunction with mars the domicile lord of the sign it's it's um yeah it's very loud you know in, in kind of promoting or or adding to you know this kind of uh phenomenon so when mars was traditionally about was weapons and swords and knives and things like that and one of the earliest glyphs for mars in demotic and in, in like an egyptian script when some of the earliest astrologers started using glyphs the glyph for mars was a, a knife um, but i always think of how in the uh what was it, like 1996 version of romeo and juliet that movie how they like modernized it and updated it and all of the people that in Shakespeare's play were like walking around with swords and had like sword duels and stuff they changed it to guns and all the and the, the swords were switched out for guns and, and guns are kind of like the modern sword in some sense so that's one of the reasons I associate it with with Mars right well like well Pluto was in Aries when a lot of these gun manufacturers were first started um 
like um, when was that roughly huh? roughly when was that that would have been in like the 1850s through the 18 through a part of the 1860s yeah i only just realized saw recently i, I guess i had never thought of that but that the bullet was like invented at a specific period in time in the middle of that century right right well and also kind of weird too is the fact that um and I, I'm not saying this because I know so much about guns. I just happen to know just this much that I guess the handles for guns used to be even made out of ram's horn. And the ram is the zodiacal image of Ares, whatever that's worth. Sure. So, and um, you had written a, an article previously about, so, so you're just talking about how Jupiter is like expanded that. And we've seen this like rash suddenly of. Um, gun violence, but then how Saturn and Aries in the past has coincided with periods of um, gun control and, and restrictions being put on guns in the U.S. For example, in in the mid 1990s, the last time Saturn was in Aries, that was when the um, assault rifle weapon weapons ban was put in place. Uh, in the late 90s, so like in 1996, 1997, or 1998, that was when. The UK and Australia banned all guns, and uh, in that same period, that was also when the federal background check system went into effect in the United States. And uh, I wrote a whole article about this. You can find on my website called "Like A History of Gun Control and Saturn and Aries" or something like that. And I just trace like uh, you know major events relating to gun control, and they seem to cluster around. Uh, Saturn Aries periods when, as expected, you know, the kind of abstract meaning of Saturn in restriction or confining or regulating, um, you know, moves to the sign of Aries, which would pertain to you know, the topics of Mars. So it uh, makes sense that these Saturn and Aries periods would be when we might be able to expect more progress to be made with, uh, you know, regulating, uh, controlling, you know, these uh, weapons. And interestingly enough, even the Second Amendment itself was ratified while the while Saturn was in Aries. So this seems to go back, you know, pretty far, and um, uh, that would seem to suggest that, you know, when Saturn enters Aries in like twenty twenty five, I think, um, or at least briefly in twenty twenty five, that that might be when we could expect some tangible. I mean, it's too far away. I'll say just as a human being, that's too far. Sure, but. we're talking about like two or three years because Saturn's about to go into Pisces in <laughs> right. the spring of next year, in 2023. So it's got at least two or three years to go through that sign. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. I will say that um, in the last Saturn and Aries period, the uh, it wasn't so much that... I mean, there were definitely initiatives in that time that, you know, limited guns. But in the United States, it was when the uh, provisions of the Brady Bill, which had been passed several years earlier, were finally put into effect. So it's still possible that legislation which is made today, say, on controlling guns might not actually go into effect until Saturn goes into Aries. So don't be completely despondent. Um, uh, you know, there is a chance that, you know, progress could be made and it might just not be until Saturn is in areas where there is sort of some meaningful impact. Mm. Okay. 
All right. So one of the next topics I wanted to talk about that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few months is, um, and I saw an observation of this and I put out a tweet about it, but one of the way I turned it into sort of like an aphorism was that when a benefic transit coincides with a malefic transit, something positive happens, but it is marred by something negative happening in the person's life at the same time. And we had a really prominent example of that you know, just a, a couple months ago with Will Smith at the Academy Awards. And on the one hand, he won. He finally, after many years of trying for it and of acting and of um, eventually like campaigning for it, which is what he finally had to do, he, he won an Academy Award for Best Actor, but it was marred by the fact that earlier that night he had run up on stage and he slapped Chris Rock for making a joke about his wife and and her her hair loss so it kind of it really obviously it overshadowed the the like negative transit overshadowed the positive one that he otherwise would have been experiencing that night and so you kind of get both but they they kind of end up affecting each other in some ways yeah it's hard to know which one ends up being the <laughs> the the which one wins out? Yeah, yeah. Which what's the um, what's the word bearing the lead? <laughs> you know, which one gets to be the headline versus which one kind of gets uh, you know, little paragraph on the front page. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to know if it's like going to be a mostly negative event that's offsetting that's offset somewhat by a benefic transit, or whether it's going to be a mostly good event that maybe has some minor drawbacks. I'd assume this has to do with, you know, what roles the planets have at like that particular point, either in someone's natal chart by like the, you know, annually perfected time lords, or in the context of an electional uh, chart. Maybe you know which planets actually rule the ascendant of that time, or something like that. Knowing which planets sort of in charge versus uh, what planets are just sort of more incidental to that moment. Right. And, um, uh, you know, there was also a lot of discussion leading up to 2020 about whether or not the Jupiter placement would potentially um, take some of the edge off of the Saturn Pluto conjunction. And, you know, obviously, I mean, it's hard to say that it was, you know, very positive, but on the other hand, there were, uh, there were some people who um, had a very different experience of, than others from the pandemic because of uh, the uh, way maybe changes at their work maybe allowed them to work from home for the first time and maybe they might have experienced that in a more positive way. Um, in certain industries, uh, people were able to, who made more money or were able to qualify for you know, more uh, aid you know, in the form of PPP loans. And so I don't want to diminish at all, you know, any of the suffering that anyone has experienced during the Saturn Pluto conjunction. But it's it's a really large example of how um, Jupiter, either, you know, I think in that case it was, I think in that case it's pretty clear that like Saturn Pluto was the dominant negative theme, and then Jupiter maybe very, uh, in a very understated way, um, provided some, yeah. You know, benefits to 
the the overall situation, even if uh, it wasn't <laughs> ideal. Jupiter was also in the sign of its fall as well, so I think that's another reason why astrologers at that point were um, uh, a little less likely to say that it was going to be like you know, an amazing uh, mitigation of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction. But, um, so I think we're going to be looking at Will Smith's chart now, more precisely to look at that, the, the infamous... <clears throat> yeah, because I'm really talking about this in a natal context of what happens when somebody has an extremely positive plan, uh, transit versus what happens and, and has an extremely negative one at the same time. Um I'm still getting this queued up, but it was March 27th, I believe, right? Do you happen to remember the date offhand? I, yeah, I didn't. That's okay. I think I've got it. So it was, yeah, because it was the night of that moon Mars conjunction um, in the sign of Aquarius. This isn't necessarily the correct time, um, but this was, this was it. And there were, two things were happening. So this is probably a good time for Will Smith. We're, we're, we're a little ambiguous. It's not as reliable as I would like in terms of the source notes on Astro Data Bank. But if this is correct, he has Gemini rising. Um, he has a night chart with the sun in the fifth whole sign house and Mercury at 28 Libra conjunct Venus at 29 Libra. And his moon in Scorpio at 21 degrees of Scorpio conjunct Neptune is the sect light so it's a much more important it's the most important luminary in his chart then um and what was interesting about it is you know jupiter is transiting through his 10th house and that's really positive and that jupiter is trining the moon pretty closely within a degree so transiting jupiter is at 20 degrees of pisces trining the moon at 21 scorpio jupiter opposition as well ruler of the 10th right um, but then, and then additionally, he also has the positive transit of like transiting Venus is at like 20, 21 degrees of Aquarius and it's coming up to square his moon at 21 Scorpio. Um, and the degree of his midheavens up there at like 14 Aquarius. So his moon's getting two transits almost simultaneously from benefics, right? So both of those are pretty positive transits, but then on the other hand, transiting Saturn has reached 21 degrees of Aquarius where it's simultaneously squaring the moon almost exactly like very very closely and then also the south node and its associations of like diminishing or decreasing things is about to go over the moon so the south node's at 23 Scorpio and it's about to go over the moon at 21 and then that night the uh, moon Mars conjunction is taking place. It, it actually took place. It was much closer to this when it actually happened. But that Moon Mars conjunction took place at 16 degrees of Aquarius, which is pretty close to his midheaven at 14 degrees of Aquarius. And applying a square to Moon, you know, it's a little a few degrees off, but it's um yeah, that's a really interesting example. Uh, yeah. This is interesting too, but just because in general people were wondering, you know, what does it mean that like Venus is going to be, um, you know, kind of sandwiched in between, you know, these two uh, malefics. And so adding in the dimension of the other benefic, making it trying to, uh, his moon really sort of fills 
pulls that scenario out of a what a time of great triumph for him, but happening at the same time as this, you know, yeah, decidedly, you know, destructive, uh, malefic event. I mean, he ended up being banned from the Oscars, I think, for 10 years. Mm. Yeah, something um, like that. I mean, so on the same night that he won Best Oscar, he gets banned from the Oscars. Well, right. Uh, well, you know, I mean, even more, I don't know if, how much that even affects him, but just that night, what was bizarre about it, if, if you watch the rest of it, was like he got up later that night and then had to accept the award for Best Actor, but then he's just like in tears and was crying. And he's like, he tries to justify a little bit to some extent what he did, but obviously realizes that he's really messed up and, and sort of like ruined the moment in some sense. And it's just a re very stark example of that, of somehow sometimes when you have a double transit that has both extremes like that, that you get both basically yeah. extremes of positive and negative. So there is a flip side to that, which is that sometimes when a negative transit happens, like a malefic transit happens, and you get a benefic transit at the same time, sometimes something bad happens and there's a bad experience or event, either, either a literal event or sometimes even just an emotional event. Since astrology can manifest either literally or sometimes emotionally, um, so something negative happens, but then there's some positive counterbalancing influence that helps to either save the day or lets there be some sort of silver lining or um, makes it not as extremely bad as it would have been otherwise. Um, you know, my classic example I always cite for that as a transit example is George Lucas, who um, had transiting Mars come up and conjoin, I think it was like the ruler of his ascendant, and they got in a terrible car accident when he was a teenager. And he was like thrown from the car and he ended up in the hospital for weeks recovering. But transiting Venus came up and like conjoined his natal Mars simultaneously in the third house at the same time. And because he was thrown from the car, he was actually saved because it then like slammed into a tree and was crumpled like a soda can and he would have died. So on the one hand, it was like he was in this terrible Tra tra or crash that really messed him up and it also changed the course of his career but on the other hand he was also saved from like dying at that time as well and that ended up being the thing that then led him to go into college and pursue eventually studying cinema and become a famous director wow yeah so there's the other side of that as well so i didn't want to make it seem like it's all only something bad but sometimes it can be positive counterbalancing thing as well. Have you ever had or, or seen any examples like that? Um, yeah, I've been trying to think, I've been trying to think like specifically of a situation uh, like that. I'm not sure one's coming. Um, if, if I manage to somehow think of it, I'll let you know. But um, okay. um, another thing I was thinking about recently was um, that planets in detriment subvert expectations and um i was thinking of this because i was watching like a commentary about on youtube it's like a long youtube video about like what happened with the recent star wars series and why that ended up being such a debacle um with the three new movies that disney once disney bought 
the rights to Star Wars. They announced that they were going to do a new trilogy like 10 years ago, and it was a big deal, and it seemed like it was going to go really well. But then the first movie was basically like The Force Awakens was like a soft reboot. But then the second movie, um, things sort of went in a, in a weird direction and, and started not going as well. And I remember when that movie came out, it was like December of 2017, and I was about to go see it, and I just happened to look at the chart of the director, and I thought it was really weird because I noticed that Saturn was about to go into Capricorn, and that the director had Saturn in Cancer, so he was going to experience a Saturn opposition right after this movie came out. And I didn't think at the time that made any sense because I was like, this is going to be great, and I was super excited to see it. And I was like, this is going to be a you know highlight of his career that he got to direct a Star Wars movie, which is probably most directors you know, dream. Um, so I was like, how could that be? Why would he be having a negative transit? That doesn't make any sense. And then I saw the movie and I really didn't like the movie because one of the things that the movie does is that the movie that came before it sets up a bunch of little threads and a bunch of little um, plot points of where the trilogy could go. J.J. Uh, Abrams, the director of the first The Force Awakens did, but then in the second movie, for some reason, the director had a lot of creative control. But one of the things that he did is he subverted expectations over and over again. And he closed a lot of those plot points in the second movie, which then sort of ended them there so that they didn't really have anywhere to go in the third film. And this is in a lot of the critical analysis. Like one of the things about the second film that people talk about is just that it subverted expectations a lot, but it did it so much or it did it without a good like purpose or reason to or like end goal in mind necessarily rather than just doing it for the sake of it. And I thought that was something that was interesting that I think may come from um, the Saturn and Cancer placement in, in the director's chart, Rian Johnson, as well as he has Mercury and Sagittarius. But one of the reasons I was thinking of that because the way that the this video framed it as they said it was kind of like anti it wasn't just subverting expectations but it was being against or going against or being anti um many of the things that the first film set up or like symbolized in some way or stood for in some way that the second film in the trilogy somehow set itself against that in some ways like the first film for example sets up the idea that like luke skywalker or ray returning luke skywalker's um lightsaber, lightsaber was like really important and that was like the culmination of the first film and at the beginning of the second film he tosses it over his shoulder he takes it and he just tosses <laughs> it over his shoulder so it, it subverts the expectations by like rejecting that that thing that was set up previously was important and that's an important thing to understand and that's why i was connecting it with detriment because that's what detriment is um in some sense it is the domicile the, the ruler of a sign being in the sign opposite to its own sign and being in a sign that's ruled by a planet that has significations that are exactly the opposite of what the initial planet signifies. So sometimes a rejection of the initial thing that's set up or going against something is part of the sort of keyword there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd say in some ways he even rejected sort of uh, a lot of Star Wars tropes, but he did this very deliberately in a lot of interviews. He has spoken about how you know, he he wanted to create something sort of 
new and fresh and unexpected and right he didn't just he didn't want the films to be too predictable so he did everything he could to uh, when some let's list some of like what were some of the other subvert um expectations that he subverted like one of them was that in the first film he they sort of set it up that ray the central character might have some she had some like mysterious family origins where it showed like her family dropping her off and abandoning abandoning her in the first film and so it set up this question of like who are ray's parents and is she going to be important like is it going to turn out that she's actually like obi-wan kenobi's like daughter or something or is she a skywalker is she part of the skywalker family since so much of the previous films had been entirely about the skywalker family and their different family trees and lineages but then in the second film one of the things rian johnson did is he said um no that there's no answer to that that you're nobody and that you have no family origin your your family was not important and so he sort of like rejects that storyline altogether mm-hmm. uh another example is that in the force awakens they set up this guy snoke as gonna be as like a sort of palpatine like big bad of uh the new sequel trilogy and then is in some ways very unceremoniously discarded in the second house i mean second film <laughs> tell me you're an astrologer without telling me you're an astrologer uh yeah in the second film <laughs> freudian that's the astrologer version of like a freudian tick yeah in the uh yeah in the second film uh the, the big bad of the series is unexpectedly killed in the middle of the movie right so he's sort of taking that idea of of a uh you know this this big bad villain and just uh kind of getting rid of them um and uh i think the other um oh yeah and then like it's like and not to do spoilers but it's been out for a few years so there's gonna be spoilers and i don't think anyone who wants to see it hasn't yet but you know at one point early in the film it's like leia is blown her ship is blown up and she's like tossed out of a ship and and it seems like it was like a really major like a death of a major character but then all of a sudden he reverses that and he's like nope and then she like flies back in mm-hmm. to the ship somehow using a power that's never been demonstrated in the series before oh yeah the force yeah the force has never been shown in the star wars movies well, like you would <laughs> the problem is that you would, you would die instantaneously and that's been set up that you, you most humans die when they get blown out into space for example yeah um <laughs> So I don't think it had ever been demonstrated that you can just not die when you get exposed to like the vacuum of space through the forest up to that point. Um, so right. were there other like, cause I, this video and I'll try to find it um, so I can mention it and give a shout out. Cause I think it was a good. Oh, well, okay. How about the fact that Yoda sets the last remaining Text containing Jedi knowledge on fire with a lightning bolt. Right. Because um, it, it sets it up of like, there's these important texts and they're important in this part of the Jedi lineage. And then they're like, nope, like that's rejected. And, and, and Luke himself in the entirety of that movie, his entire thing was that the Jedi is not important and the Jedi need to end or, or something like He was like, like he, well, he was more or less like Yoda was in Empire Strikes Back. He'd exiled himself, you know, because of uh you know the events of revenge of the sith i mean here's the thing i mean some of those some of those reversals make some degree of character sense or psychological sense but it was still jarring you know to watch and then 
it was also very difficult, I think, for, you know, another director to take that story and uh, follow through with uh, the story because it had just been left in such a, a strange place in some ways. Yeah, so the title of that, so people can search for the Star Wars sequels, Disney's anti-trilogy um, from a YouTube channel titled So Uncivilized. So really in the middle part, their analysis, especially of the second film, is what I thought was so interesting. And the notion notion of, um, yeah, of just subverting expectations, being something about planets in detriment because they go against the grain. And sometimes that comes up in other ways literally because one of the ancient interpretations, the earliest and one of the only initial interpretations of planets in detriment in some of the Hellenistic tradition is when a planet is was like the ruler of the fourth house or had something to do with the home and living situation or when it was the ruler of the moon, if a planet was in detriment in the, in the sign opposite to its domicile, it was said to indicate people who live, who move away from their home country and live in a foreign country or someplace foreign or different from what they grew up in because the concept was if a planet's domicile is its home sign, then detriment is like the furthest you can get from your home sign. So in some ways you're almost like, um, not evicted, but in exile from your home sign. And I know in the medieval tradition that actually became one of the words to refer to detriment was, um, they were referred, referred to it as the place of a planet's exile. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I, um, yeah, I've sort of come up with little ways of remembering, you know, what or th ways to think about planets being in their opposite sign. Um, so, like, for example, you know, if Libra, the environment of Libra is like, we might imagine it to be like a Venusian dinner party, you know, where the rules of etiquette are, are upheld. And so Mars being in Libra is like, you know, a brute at dinner, you know, it's like, this is like a, you know, this is like a Viking warrior, you know, trying to fit in at, with a uh, high society, you know, in this civilized environment of Libra. And so there's kind of a, uh, you know, there's just a sort of mismatch in some ways between, you know, uh, Mars and this environment of Libra. Or if you were to think of, um, you know, if you were to think of Sagittarius as the home of Jupiter, you might think of this as like a, uh, you know, a, a holy place, a temple, a church, you know, but Mercury is like a stand-up comedian, you know, a stand-up comedian, <laughs> a stand-up, com you know, Mercury's function is to, you know, rattle people and to shake up people and, uh, you know, make them joke, uh, make them laugh, you know, but that's not necessarily appropriate in, you know, this more serene environment of, uh, of uh, Sagittarius. And if you were to think of like Virgo, you know, as this merc mercurial place for like nerds, you know, then like, you know, Jupiter is like the, Jupiter and Virgo is like the philosophy major trying to fit in, in the math department at a university. You know, there's this, there's a kind of a strange mismatch <laughs> between, um, you know, someone's sort of skills and the natural tendencies versus the environment they find themselves in. And so one of the things you people often say about planets in detriment is, or rather something I think people sometimes worry about about their planets in detriment is like, oh, my planet in detriment is bad because it's outside of its own sign. And I think it's probably a better way to think about it is that, you know, 
a planet in, in detriment is kind of needed in some respects. Like maybe that Libran dinner party, you know, could afford to be a little looser or allow people to be able to express, you know, uh, feelings of anger in a productive way. Maybe there is some flexibility that's needed on the environment. So I would say that in some ways, planets in detriment are providing a kind of unique outsider perspective to their respective environment as well. Yeah. And um, the original Greek word for detriment was inantioma, which means something that's opposite or opposed. And so it's something that goes against the grain or is opposed to something. And that's why I was opening up this discussion talking about like subverting expectations, because part of subverting expectations is going against something that has been established. And I think that's part of the archetypal quality of detriment. But like you were saying, that's not always a bad thing. And sometimes that's necessary. It, it, in my opinion, subjective opinion, wasn't successful in this instance with like that second Star Wars movie, because if you were saying it, it undermines so many of the plot points for the trilogy that it didn't really leave them anywhere to go in the third one. So in the third movie, um, once the first director, J.J. Abrams, came back, he was just kind of like scrambling to then negate and undermine some of the plot points from the second movie in order to resume them and try to bring the whole trilogy to some sort of conclusion, but it didn't end up being super satisfying. So all that being said, even though that's a negative example of detriment maybe not working out, um, sometimes you know there does need to be somebody that is against things or that stands up and goes against the grain because sometimes that is a necessary and, and productive and helpful you know part of thing in like society or in terms of individual people who play that role in society. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm I'm reminded of Muhammad Ali. You know, and his Mars and Taurus. Um, uh, I believe it's in the ninth. It's in the tenth. Uh, it's in the tenth. Okay. Oh, it, it, it rules, rules the, ninth. the ninth. Yeah, yeah. And it's in the tenth, and I think it's it, it's a really fascinating like contradiction in some ways. Like he was the greatest fighter ever. You know, he was someone who could like beat anyone up. But like he refused to be a soldier, you know, he refused to go on orders of the government to go fight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was through his kind of heroism and courage in like saying, I'm not going to fight. Right. <laughs> the greatest fighter was to not fight. You know, that protesting was the, protesting the Vietnam the War. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's, um, you know, I think that's how. That's how planets in detriment or planets in antithesis or exile, whichever term you prefer to use. Um, oh, yeah, antithesis. I it forgot can that be, was the key word that I was using was antithesis yeah. was the word I've been using for detriment. Yeah. They, they, they can be, they can fulfill a very necessary function in, in sort of showing how, you know, the values of the sign that it's in are, kind of messed up or overvalued in some respect. And so if Taurus is like a peaceful, serene environment, then Mars is the bull in a china shop. Sure. So, but sometimes it can be not easy, especially early in the person's life. It can represent a sore spot because it's something where sometimes it can indicate a planet that feels out of place mm -hmm. um, or like out of its element or, or in a foreign um, surrounding that it's initially not well suited to or well adapted to, but sometimes later after a lot of practice and, and sort of counterbalancing or pushing to overcome that, it can still 
um, be successful or become an area of strength or something like that. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's leading us to some interesting, you know, further understanding of, of basic concepts like and and essential dignities like you know detriment. So that's really good. Um, I thought it was funny that your thing about Avatar ended up being true because they dropped the trailer for that in the past month, and um, you had made the observation, like we had all seen that under the last Jupiter-Neptune conjunction twelve years ago, that the first Avatar movie came out, and you observed that it was in the air sign of Aquarius, and it was largely set like in the sky and like flying around on these animals was like a major part of it, and. Of course, the Neptune part of it was that was one of the first movies where it started the whole 3D craze, and it was like this truly immersive experience where it seemed like it dissolved the barrier between you and like the experience of this movie by giving you this additional sort of feeling like you were like there. Yeah, totally. Another dimension. Yeah, it's it's uh, wild. And then the. Uh, yeah, the trailer dropped for Avatar 2, The Way of Water. It's all set in water. So, yeah, it corresponds perfectly to the uh, element of the Jupiter-Neptune conjunction. And we know that um, the movie itself isn't going to come out until later in December. And, of course, that's when Jupiter has returned to Pisces very briefly to be co-present with Neptune again. Right. So, <laughs> so 12 years later, he's going to release the next one under another Jupiter-Neptune conjunction, but this time it's in a water sign and he ha happens to be setting the, the movie entirely in water. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty pretty weird. Pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, so let's do some rapid fire answering of some questions that came in on Twitter. So one of them from Alexander Green says, what do modern astrology delineations bring to the table that traditional astrology falls short on and vice versa? So. I think something I've been getting reacquainted with over the past few months, uh, different astrologers I feel like go through stages of looking at their chart and like how intensely you're looking at your transits on like a day-to-day -day basis or a regular basis or how intensely you're looking at your time lord periods and like zodiac releasing periods or what have you. Have you have you gone through phases like that? Yeah, I go through periods of just being like hyper-intensive aware of like everything that's happening and then I go through periods where I am kind of flying blind. I would say right now I'm like kind of midway. I'm like I'm not completely focused on every trance that I'm having right now but I'm aware of some of the longer uh, uh, larger scale ones. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think that's normal, and I think that's healthy in terms of different astrologers go through different stages, and it's okay early in a person's career. Everyone goes through a stage earlier in your study of astrology where you're super obsessed with everything, and you know every transit that's going on in your chart and in like everyone's chart that you know who's in your like immediate family or circle at the time or what have you. Um, but then everyone goes through different stages, but. I've been going through a stage where I've been paying more attention lately than I had been previously for a while. And one of the things I forgot about, what an amazing resource it is, but the personal daily horoscope on astro.com and how it tells you, you know, what transits are going exact on a given day. And it tells you both short-term transits as well as long-term transits. And then it gives you a delineation, like a few paragraph a paragraph or a few paragraphs. Um, from Rob Han's classic book, Planets in Transit. And it's an entirely 
modern psychological interpretation, largely psychological interpretation, that is probably out of date compared to what he what he would write now. And he's supposed to be writing an updated version of that. But I've been becoming reacquainted with the good parts of that of a psychological interpretation and how some of his delineations are just like right on for certain transits and that sometimes a psychological interpretation of things can be really helpful and really evocative in terms of describing what you're experiencing you know under on a given day under a certain type of, type of transit mm-hmm. now sometimes that's not true and sometimes it can be way off because it's not taking into account things like sect or you know, annual perfections, or it's not giving a very literal interpretation of what kind of events could manifest under this. If you're having like a Mars transit and, you know, you get burned or something like that, let's say, is a really literal example of like a Mars transit. Um, so sometimes it falls short in terms of its range of interpreting things in a, in a literal way. But as psychological interpretation, sometimes um, modern astrology does a good job of um, providing that, which is a little bit missing from traditional astrology, the psychological side of things. Sure. I was also going to say, just sort of more straightforwardly, well, uh, modern astrology's delineations include the outer planets. Uh, traditional astrology obviously uh, can't do that. So I think that's uh, a pretty clear win. You know, for uh, modern astrology delineations and how they, you know, <laughs> supersede uh, some traditional ones, um, just on that basis. But which is, I feel like, important to say because there are, which is interesting for me to see. There's traditional astrology purists that will say you shouldn't use the outer planets at all. But we're we are we are not purists in that sense, or no. fundamentalists in that sense, because we incorporate things from modern astrology, such as the outer planets? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it, it it operates on top of the systems that already exist. And that's actually part of what gives the uh, outer planets their meaning. It's the fact that they are transcendental, that they go beyond the systems that were previously established. You know, I think that they... Um, uh, that's why they, they don't signify normal, everyday things, necessarily. They... They are special. They're kind of beyond the ordinary. I mean, to a certain extent, but sometimes it's literal, and they're not entirely transcendental. I mean, Uranus transit can be very literal. Sure, changes and disruptions, or like getting electrocuted, or something like that. Yeah, although it's interesting because of the few electrocution shots I've looked at, which is a completely normal okay. thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. do yeah, it usually involve Mars. And I was okay. surprised because I, I thought for sure, like, oh, it's got to be Uranus transit if you get electrocuted, but most of the time it's Mars. So I assume that um, uh, it just refers to the the burning of of uh, electrocution, but um, yeah, I thought that Uranus would be a bigger deal for getting electrocuted. Okay, yeah, but, I, and yeah, and but then there's other things like a Neptune transit and some of the literal ways that that can manifest in like a physical thing or something. So it's it's just something that makes me nervous about saying that they're transcendental because they're not completely outside of the realm of human experience or, or even mundane experience, sometimes in very literal ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I think they definitely are brought, <laughs> they are, I mean, they're, they're in our lives now. Yeah, I guess uh, it's, it's fair to say that. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's my, my answer to the question is that modern astrology brings outer planets or it brings 
sometimes a psychological thing. Another thing it brings is um, sometimes a counseling, a sensitivity to the counseling dynamic and the important role the astrologer plays in a person's life and sometimes the ways in which you want to be careful as an astrologer not to harm to do to do no harm you know which is usually more of a, a medical dictum but it's also something to keep in mind for astrologers that i think is important that you don't you know always get the sense that that was like the primary thing for ancient astrologers that sometimes their their job was to be right and be correct and make a correct prediction and that was the primary overriding thing um but one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately, you know, prediction is not always inherently helpful. And sometimes there's a time when a, a prediction, even if it's true, could be harmful and therefore maybe shouldn't be made. Well, that connects right into another question we have here. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you know what that is? Do you want to read that? Um, I don't think it was a question. I thought it was just a point, unless you have a specific question in mind. Oh, it's I, the I, one that says, uh, how to consult the more destined, determined, traditional astrology part with your client instead of just making them depressive about the results. Yeah, okay. So, And that was from somebody named Sunrise, Sunrise Astrology. Astrology. Um, so what, what is the answer? I mean, that's really tricky because sometimes it's just, there might be things that you see it as an astrologer that, especially if the person isn't asking about it, you don't necessarily need to go into or may not be pertinent information for them at that time in their life. Right. Well, I think you have to be, you have to make somewhat of a judgment call as to how, what the emotional state is of the person you're talking to is and not in any kind of clinical way. I'm not like trained as a therapist or anything, but just like as a human being, like, you know, is someone speaking to me in a way that communicates that they like are hanging on my every word and need a bit of hope you know, it's probably not going to do them much good to like talk about, you know, the terrible transits unless it's about um, how uh, it's about to come to an end, <laughs> you know, perhaps, you know, about how those transits are maybe uh, limited in some way. But um, most of the time, you know, clients will be pretty upfront with me and say like, they may say to me directly, like, you know, I don't want you to sugarcoat anything like, you know, even for those clients though, who ask, like, don't, not to sugarcoat anything, I, I think I still employ some discretion. Um, and that doesn't mean that I necessarily omit things. I mean, unless it's outside of the scope of what they're asking about. Um, but I, I think I, even uh, not admitting things, I would think I, I just try to find a way that describes, something that could still be helpful. So for example, we were talking earlier about, you know, Justin Bieber's chart and, you know, I'm thinking like, what would I have told this person who has this chart if I had talked to them prior to these transits? And, you know, I think if you see someone who is about to have like, you know, these kind of messed up transits, like an eclipse in the first house and, you know, Saturn stationing retrograde on their ascendant ruler, like I'd probably tell them to like slow down and like take care of yourself. And, you know, and I think that would maybe be more helpful than to just say, you know, you know, it looks like X, Y, Z is going to happen. Yeah. Um, well, and that was what was interesting to me afterwards is that his statement in the video was said he, he was going to like 
slow down and like listen to his body and and try to focus more on his health and pull back a little bit from work and things like that in order to do what he needed to do in order to you know make sure he was healthy so he sort of said something like that that actually made complete sense archetypally in terms of that transit and what that kind of transit could do to you but yeah that would be consistent with like this type of advice you would give to somebody right and and i think for mars transits um you know, especially if the person is already aware of the transit and uh, already have some anxiety about it, you know, I, I mean, I'm on the fence about whether or not, you know, remediation is possible. But if someone is having like a difficult Mars transit, I, I might, I might even advise to like maybe consciously decide to do something that requires a lot of effort and energy, you know, on a day where you're experiencing a big Mars transit. There have been a few like big Mars transits in my own chart where I wasn't even really paying attention to it, but it ended up being a day where I ended up having to really, um, you know, do like a lot of yard work, you know, chopping up wood or something. And, and it's, yeah, it's Marshall, you know, but, um, and granted Mars isn't like my worst malefic, I'm a night shot, but um, uh, I think that, um, you know, Saturn seems to advise like caution, slow down. Mars seems to say, you have to put in the effort. Um, uh, of course, if it looks more injurious, then I might just say, you know, chill, you know, plan a relaxing weekend that time, <laughs> you know, and uh, hopefully it won't turn out quite as gnarly as it looks in the chart. Um, so I, I guess my overall approach is to think of advice that corresponds to um, the nature of the transit that, could actually be helpful, yeah. Rather than projecting the kinds of events that occur could occur, and hopefully that's more useful. Well, what, and one of the things, one of the most important things, I think all of us learn as astrologers is that for any one indication or transit or time lord period or what have you, there's there's a range of possible manifestations from like let's say like worst case scenario to best case scenario and everything in between. Like no matter what the transit and the astrology has its limitations and that it doesn't for the astrologer provide complete omniscience so you're not looking into crystal ball and you don't know exactly what's going to happen precisely in the future and no matter how much certainty or how much it rises to the level of like multiple indications and like you know pretty good inferences about what the direction you think it's going and how you think it's going to turn out as an astrologer until it happens, you never know for sure. And that as a practicing astrologers or even as astrology enthusiasts instills in us a certain uh, understanding that astrology is sort of like, like provisional. I'm not sure if provisional is the right word, but that, you know, any statements or predictions or, or interpretations are interpretations of symbolism. And there could be a, a range of different ways that that could manifest. And so that in and of itself, I think, instills a certain or, or provides a certain amount of free will, even if everything was predetermined, because even if everything was predetermined, the astrologer's inability to fully know precisely 100% exactly how the future will play out in every detail leaves a certain amount of um, wiggle room for different possible manifestations and therefore a reason for each individual to to strive to 
have the most constructive manifestation of whatever transit or placement is in their birth chart that they can possibly have and not to just give up and, and you know, allow the worst manifestation to take place. I mean, sometimes there are things that are completely outside of your control. And so when that does happen, certainly being able to develop a certain amount of um, acceptance of that is, is useful and can be healthy and important, but not giving in sort of fatalistically or giving into a sort of fatalism that's unnecessary or that is self-defeating is a really important component in astrology and an important component of being a consulting astrologer and giving advice to people. Totally. Yeah. So that's part of where I would go with that when it comes to that. And, and that's really tricky and it's going to, there's going to be a range of different ways to do that for each consulting astrologer, but that at least, you know, not doing anything harmful to the client and giving them some insight into the range of possible manifestations and encouragement to shoot for the more constructive ones to whatever extent they can is probably, you know, good, good advice. Totally. All right. Um, one of the questions that came in on Twitter from Mel West said, when practicing astrologers start reading charts, what are some of the things to test slash look for to hone your skills and become a good astrologer? What do you think? Well, I think just identifying the ruler of the ascendant is a really good place to start um, for being able to make some statements that correspond to their experience. I also think identifying the most difficult and most positive planet in the chart by sect and house placement is another really um, good way to kind of quickly get at some of the major benefits or issues that someone experiences in their life. And this comes from time and, and practice and reading and looking at a lot of example charts of people you know or of famous people and getting a sense of you know how these placements actually work in reality. And um, uh, I mean, sometimes my wife and I, sometimes we even play this game where like we'll find a random chart on Astro Databank and like cover up any like identifying information. And we'll just try to make some statements based on those chart placements to try to see, you know, completely blind, you know, how do we do? And then, so then we'll read a little bit about, you know, that person and uh, it's, uh, the results have been really strange. Sometimes we read about things from the chart that are, are impossible to verify because it's just too personal or, um, or whatnot. But sometimes there can be pretty impressive um, results. Like one time we were looking at, a chart of someone who had this big like Mars Saturn um, signature in their chart. And so I was sort of going on about, oh, this person must have like some of the virtues of like endurance and patience and, and stamina and, um, you know, being able to do sort of really hard things. And then we looked at whose chart it was and it belonged to this like Olympian runner who was like a long distance runner who ran like for mile, hundreds of miles or <laughs> something ridiculous like that. And uh, you know, he's long dead, but uh, it was weird to know that some of those statements, you know, made perfect sense for someone who was capable of great feats of endurance. Um, so you start through that process, you can kind of learn like what kinds of statements you can make that actually 
are applicable or could make sense to like, you know, describing a child as someone you've never met. And um, uh, so that kind of practice, I think, is really helpful. Yeah, for sure. That's funny that you two, as a couple that are astrologers, like do that. That's a cute bit of like astrologer foreplay date or something. Night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, date night. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I think those are good points in terms of just looking at a chart and what you look for and prioritizing, you know, the ruler, the ascendant, and what house it's in, identifying the most positive, benefic, and the most negative, malefic based on sect. And then also even just identifying the sect light itself, like is it a day chart? What sign is the sun in? Is it a night chart? What sign is the moon in? And that gives you a lot of information right from the start. And something I noticed, I did a consultation recently where um, a person had a bunch of placements, like a stellium in a certain house. And it was the fifth house actually. And I, I, I often want to have that tendency to want to play, you know, not box the person in and sometimes almost be kind of being kind of skeptical of what my initial impulse of a statement is. Um, but I sort of not reluctantly, but like carefully asked, I was like, you know, placements like this could indicate on the one hand, um, the potential for children becoming an important topic in your life at some point. Is that something you're interested in or have any interest in, or do you have sort of like an aversion to that topic in wanting to keep it open-ended and, and understand the full range of possible manifestations, even though with all the placements, the astrology itself was like children should be important and they were largely positive placements. And she was like, yeah, like children is actually a really important thing and having children is something I've always wanted to do and will be a major life goal for me at some point um, once it's time. And so one of the things that reminded me of that I hadn't been reminded of is sometimes just like t trusting the astrology and saying sometimes like what the astrology would indicate or say sometimes in the most literal manifestation possible of just constructing a very short sentence of like this placement indicate could indicate this as a major possible manifestation in the life and sometimes the most literal interpretation can be the most correct one even much to your surprise as an astrologer? Oh, totally. That, that happens quite a bit. And I don't even know how much to lean into a given placement because I just see that and I'm like, uh, does that really mean this? And they're like, oh, actually, totally. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. Because you're, you're talking to a complete stranger and you have no idea in practical sense like who this person is and where they're coming from. You just have the chart itself it, which is like this map of their life, but that's one of the weirdest things that maybe takes a while as a consulting astrologer once you first start doing consultations is to get comfortable with that and comfortable making a statement that you don't otherwise, in practical terms, since you're talking to a stranger, have any reason to think is true. But oftentimes, when you interpret it in a straightforward way, will turn out to be true in some way in the person's life. Well, yeah, and those things are just calculated risks sometimes. Like, um, there was a person's chart I was reading for where they had, um, I believe, Saturn entering into their ninth house. And it was interacting with some of the planets that made me think there would be the possibility of them running into uh, legal issues or legal problems. And so I mentioned that that would be one of the possibilities of that transit when Saturn entered into Aquarius in late 2020. 
and she, and I felt really bad at the time because she said, um, well, that's ridiculous. You know, how dare you make these insinuations that are like, coming to legal problems or, you know, they'll be dealing with a lawsuit. Like, you know, you have no reason to think that. And, and I said, I'm, you know, I'm not saying this will happen. I'm just saying that like, this is what this transit could mean in combination with a few other factors in your chart. And then this was like back, I think in early 2020. So then late 2020 comes and like it's around February of 2021 and she gets back to me and she says that she had just been served papers in a lawsuit that originated from something from a dispute that occurred in late 2020, um, which is when Saturn made the ingress into a ninth house. So I've like <laughs> breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> that like, okay, you know, I wasn't totally off base, but I had no reason to know or think that that, you know, was going to happen. And it was actually kind of, maybe that wasn't the right thing for me to have said. It didn't stop it from happening. It didn't do anything except, I guess, you know, I don't know. It's uh, another notch on my belt of predictions that, you know, went okay. Yeah. Um, Which is good, although also is one of the, can be a downside and something to be careful about as the astrologer of like, what is your like this wasn't a example where it was dicey but there could be other situations where it could be dicey if the astrologer values being right over the client's like well-being and like right. mental health or something like that of course if the astrologer's desire to like make a prediction that comes true if they make that sort of like trump everything else mm -hmm. sometimes that can be more focused on like the astrologer's ego rather than right the client's well-being in some ways well and my um, my motivation in telling them was to prepare you know and i wasn't entirely sure how it was going to come about and apparently the conditions that led to the lawsuit kind of came up at the time of the ingress so it wasn't really anything that was even in motion at that time and that's obviously why she reacted the way she did there wasn't like there was anything in that had already happened that might have maybe made her think that this was on the horizon it seemed to focus on yeah well and, and that time and that brings up you know one of the major wake-up calls for astrologers in 2020 was um you know going into 2020 most of the astrologers were looking at some of those alignments like the saturn pluto conjunction and that that pile up in capricorn and stuff and, and not thinking that it looked like a super great year and in our like year ahead forecast we you know said it was going to be a tough year and interpreted some of that stuff um without tra trying not to go too far because so much of the dialogue in modern 20th century astrology in the like 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s so much of the community discussion once things shifted towards talking about counseling doing no harm not freaking clients out with overly negative interpretations or fatalistic delineations and stuff so much of the dialogue was about astrologers holding back and even to some extent it was going to an extreme of saying not saying negative things and there are some astrologers that believe you should never say anything negative or or challenging either about a person's chart or about predictions about their future or what have you and I, I remember distinctly like one person that wrote me after listening to the year ahead forecast that we put out in December of 2019 about 2020 and they were just like super angry about some of the negative or more pessimistic things that we said about 
what 2020 was going to be like in a, in a macro sense for the collective. And they were just like, you shouldn't make statements like this. And, and there's nothing in astrology that's always negative or an astrologer shouldn't make negative predictions like that. And then like, she wrote me a few months later, once like the pandemic hit in March of 2020 and she's like, oh, okay, you're, you're right. You had a point there. And that was an interesting reassessment that astrologers had in general, which is on the one hand, you don't want to be overly pessimistic and freak people out, especially unnecessarily. But then the other side of that could be if you don't call certain things or if you don't state things as you see them, and if you sugarcoat things too much, you could end up on the other side of that, which is like people saying, why didn't you tell me about this? Or you didn't call this or, or what have you. And so that can be the other flip side of that coin. Mm-hmm. So it's been interesting seeing astrologers then reacting that to that and trying to figure out the right middle ground between negative and positive predictions and the tendency towards extremes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that answers that question. Okay. <laughs> cool. Um, I'm not sure if there are any other major, major ones. We did get like a ton of questions, but a lot of it was more like technical stuff that would be entire episodes on its own. So I don't know that we need to necessarily try to tackle any of these at this point. Sure. Okay, cool. Well, I think that might be it then for this random discussion episode and like some Q&A questions and some random discussion topics from Twitter. (laughs) Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining me for this. All right. So I guess that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Where can people find out more information about you and your work? Uh, at patrickwatsonastrology.com. That's where I have my articles. That's where I have general consultation services available and rectifications, elections, horary, you name it. If, I, if it's something in astrology, I'd probably do it. So uh, that's where you can find me at patrickwatsonastrology.com. Cool. And we'll be putting together the rectification course this week and hopefully launching it before too long. And that'll be available at courses.theastrologyschool.com. Cool. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrology podcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount.
For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com slash book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwak.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org. Thank you.